My name is Keith Beavers, and I just found out that avocados are not vegetables, but they're fruits. They're actually called single-seeded berries. I'm never going to see an avocado the same again. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair, and hi. Today, we're doing another deep dive into another region that we may have talked about in the past. It's called the Rhone. You know it. You love it. We're going to take it piece by piece, and we're going to start with a deep dive into the Northern Rhone. Let's do this. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Louis M. Martini Winery, where an 85-year-old legacy of making Cabernet Sauvignon is still going strong. Everything Cabernet Sauvignon is celebrated at Martini. The history, the winemaking, the wine. Visit the Martini tasting room and sip cap inside, outside, in the cabana, or an underground cellar. Or try a full culinary exploration from the in-house chef. The people at Louis M. Martini Winery are serious about Cab. Taste it, and you'll know why Cab is king. Okay, so just like in the last two episodes, I'm going to dial in on the Rhone. And in, ep- and in season two, I do an entire breakdown like I did with Bordeaux of the Rhone. So go ahead and take a listen to that before or after this episode, because in this episode, we're going to concentrate a little bit more on the Northern Rhone. And then next week, we're going to concentrate on the Southern Rhone to give you guys a little bit of details of what's going on in these places. In season two, I talked about how the ancientness is so big here in the Rhone and how important the Rhone River has been since humans have been around. And a lot of that crazy stuff I'll talk about in the next episode because what happened in the Southern Rhone, there was a papacy and it was in Avignon and it was pretty crazy and pretty impactful to the region. But today we're going to talk about the Northern part of the Rhone and The thing about the northern part of the Rhone is it also has a lot of ancientness (laughs) going on. In the 4th century BC, this was a time of Greek colonization. This is when they go over to the boot of Italy. This is where they hit up southern France. And at the mouth of the Rhone River, they build a town called, well, it's now today called Marseille. But back then it was called the Colony of Massalia. And this begins... Big, I mean, this is where the documentation of the importance of the Rhone River begins because they're at the mouth and they go up from there and eventually the Northern Rhone becomes part of this world. By the first century AD, the Romans were in control of this area and a little bit further up towards Northern Rhone, I guess almost to the Northern Rhone area between the south and the north is this town called Donzier. And right here is where the largest villa in antiquity has been excavated. And a villa today means a very fancy, luxurious place, but back in antiquity, it meant a place for production. The stats say this thing was pretty huge for its time. It contained two storage bays, 204 dolia, or onfora, wine vessels, and just for grain as well. But the thing is, this thing was in operation from 50 to 80 AD and produced 25 hectoliters of wine per year. And in addition to grain, there were over 300 hectares of vines. A hectare is like a little over two and a half acres around there. And in addition to that, 
it had workshops to actually build the dolia or amphora that would the grain and the wine would go into. There was a major production facility right there in the Rhone Valley that's been since the Roman times. So since the Greeks, the Romans, this place has been just, there are humans everywhere. And then the Romans fall. And then the whole area has hard times because that's what happened in a lot of areas when the Romans fell. And guess what came after the Romans to kind of help things along? Yep, the monks. And from here, the monk story turns into something important for the Southern Rhone. And we'll get into that next episode. Because where there's monks, there's bishops. And where there's bishops, there's popes. And things get crazy. Expansion happens. But you know where it doesn't happen? In the Northern Rhone. I mean, yes, there was expansion in the Northern Rhone, but not like we're going to see in the Southern Rhone. The Northern Rhone is made up of these, it's a short list of appellations that are considered prestigious. Not more so than Southern Rhone. That's not what it's about, but it just seems that it's a place that is isolated, small production, somewhat small production, with wines that are a direct result of the micro and mesoclimates they grow in, in a way that Burgundy and Bordeaux have, but different in its own. I know that sounds confusing. I'm going to get into it. For example, let's take Hermitage. Let's start there. Hermitage, you've heard of it. If you haven't, listen to the Rhone episode, but Hermitage is very small. It's actually a large hill, but it's a very small appellation. It's actually, I was reading that Hermitage as an AOC, as an appellation, is as large as one Bordeaux estate, to give you a sense of how small it is. And the legend goes that after the Crusades, a, um, a knight by the name of Henri Gaspard de Sterenberg wanted to atone for all the sins that he sinned during the crusades and he went up to the top of this hill on the Rhone river, built a little hut, planted vines and lived a life of solitude. And the word for hermit in French is ermite, E-R-M-I-T-E. And these wines were famous in the 18th and the 19th century. And in the 19th century, the English were the main consumers of French wine. And they had a lot of difficulty pronouncing this word. So when they brought and sent barrels for trade, they put an H in front of the E to make it easier for them to say. Hermitage, not Hermitage. I don't know. I think they're both pretty easy. Of course, I either overpronounce or underpronounce now. So. so it's this big, massive granite hill with a bunch of big mix of different soils facing the river. So if you're on the Rhone River and you're looking up at this massive hill, right in front of it is this little town called Tan. Tain, T-A-I-N. And behind it is the, the Hermitage Hill, but the Hermitage, it looks like it's actually falling towards the river. It's still there. It's not going anywhere, but it's it's pretty massive. It's almost like it's it's avalanching towards this little town, but it's stuck in its granite foreverness. And that's the thing about this hill. Because of the granite, it's chiseled and it's very steep, and the vineyards are hard to harvest. And in addition to that, the mix of soils is so crazy that wines from here are often blended with terroir to give expressions. So I'm going to do a soil episode at some point in the future soon, but 
for now, just know sandy gravel, limestone, and clay. These soils in different proportions make up the vineyard soil of this hill. And the cool thing is, like Burgundy, you have all these climat, these small plots of land that people harvest. And there are different plots of soil that are they're blended to make a very kind of complex hermitage. But there are winemakers that can make a Syrah from an actual, just their own soil. And that in itself is a triumph in hermitage. And like I say in the Rhone episode, this is on the right bank of the Rhone River. I started with that one because I want to give you the scale of that, that sort of rare expansion thing. Because then we go to the left part of the river, we're going to go all the way north to Cote Roti, which I talk about in the Rhone episode. And just to dial in on that for a second, because it's a very, it's very interesting what happens here. The Rhone, south and north, like a lot of wine regions in Europe in the 1970s, was almost a little forgotten. And it wasn't until the 1980s when Robert Parker came around and to certain regions and glorified these places. And oh my gosh, things started happening. And one of those places is Cote Roti. Cote Roti is the spot where some people believe the first vines were cultivated in Gaul. And the Romans were definitely here because there's a very famous Roman town just nearby called Vienne or Vienne. Inland and north from a small little port town on the Rhone River called Ampuis, I think it's called Ampuis, A-M-P-U-I-S, is the, the slopes of Cote Roti. And the thing about this area is when the river, the way the river turns here, these slopes have maximum sun exposure because they're cultivated in the extreme southeast. And these vineyards are actually some of the steepest vineyards in France. They have to use pulley systems at times to, to harvest. And it's thought that these vineyards were cultivated not by the Romans, but by a tribe the Romans took over at some point called the Alabroges. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's kind of awesome that even to this day, these slopes are here. And because of the exposure to the sun, this is why the appellation is called Cote Roti, which means roasted slope. And like I said, you know, for a while there, it wasn't really considered anything. You know, it became an AOC at some point, but the, the work of the Gigal family, G-U-I-G-A-L, you will see this name everywhere on the American market. You will see it in supermarkets. You will see it in wine shops. The price range from this company is very wide, but they are a family-owned merchant and grower, and they're based in that little town on Puis. Established in 1946, this is a family that was able to grab 75 acres of prime vineyard space in the Cote Roti. And through many years and a lot of hard work and experimentation, the Gigal family had these three specific parcels, the best parcels of these 75 acres. And they made three wines from each parcel. The parcel's name were La Moline, La Landron and La Torque. I, again, do not know if I'm pronouncing these correctly, but what's, imp- I mean, 
obviously it's hard to pronounce them because the nickname for these three wines are called the La La's in, in America because who's going to pronounce all three of these names? But the thing is, these wines were unfined, unfiltered, dense with oak, and Robert Parker in the 1980s was like, this is delicious, and really put Cote Roti on the map. And this is part of that 80s boom when there was more going on, more winemakers, more regions were re reworking how they made wine, cleaning up their cellars, cleaning up their vineyards, doing different things to attract international attention. And all this attention, of course, would put pressure on for expansion. But like I said, the Northern Rhone doesn't really expand that much. But there was some expansion here. In the 1970s, there's about 70 hectares of vines in the Cote Roti, and by the 1990s, it was 150 hectares. I mean, that's some expansion, but again, going back to our Bordeaux example, 150 hectares is less than the largest Medoc estate. So it's still very small. And one thing I need to mention here is there are two sections of Cote Roti that have names. There is Cote Blonde, which is in the southern part, and Cote Brune, which is in the northern part. And it, at one time, it was thought that Cote Blonde was lighter and more, I guess, elegant than, or lithe, than Cote Brune. But really, what I hear today with people in Cote Roti is a blend of both is a real expression of this area. So and you're out, when you're out there looking at Cote Roti, it's going to be very expensive wine, but you get when you're talking to the wine merchant, maybe ask them like, what is this one? A mix of these slopes or how does this work? So you get a sense of what you're tasting and sticking with the whole steep slope, small production thing is the region just South of Cote Roti called Condru. And where, as I mentioned in the Rhone episode, Cote Roti blends both red and white sometimes Syrah and Viognier. Condru is exclusively white, wine from one grape, Viognier, and again, in small amounts. Condru is made up of seven communes across three departments south of Roti. And the, the thing about this area is, again, it also has these very granitic, steep, slopey vineyards. And here they talk of a very specific kind of soil composition of decomposed mica, or as they say is arzel. Of course, I'll talk about mica in, the, in our soil episode a little bit more, but what, the reason I'm telling you this is this is usually around the village of Chavonnet, and it's thought that this is the area that, that, that expresses the purest form of Viognier. And this region, this small little appellation, this is thought to be, it probably actually is, it actually is, the Viognier, the reason we plant Viognier in the United States and around the world is try to is to try to achieve the Viognier quality and style that Condru has. It's almost like trying to grow Sauvignon Blanc and make it into a wine and get as close to Sancerre as you can. And these wines are expensive because of the small production. I think in uh, in twenty to thirteen. I'm sure there's more now, but probably not a lot. But in 2013, there were only 415 acres, the entire Appalachian. But with the terrain and the hills here, it almost makes expansion even more kind of impossible. It's kind of cool. It's like terroir says stop here. 
But what's unique about Condru is it's a small appellation, but within its appellation has an enclave or enclave appellation, which is actually one of the smallest appellations in France, and it's named after a chateau. Right on the banks of the bank of the river, there's this beautiful chateau, and surrounding it is an almost an, it's an amphitheater of granite, chiseled vineyards in granite. It's an absolutely stunning sight. And because it's so because it's so important, it has its own AOC. Thomas Jefferson is recorded as enjoying the wines from here. It's always been under single ownership, and the production is, as you can imagine, minute. Barely two thousand cases are made of wine a year here. The thing about this is this wine is small production, and it's absolutely phenomenal. I've never had them. All I hear about has is how amazing this stuff is. The thing about Viognier is Viognier isn't a very age-worthy variety. Even though these, these places are so famous. Actually, that's why Condru is so wild, because these wines are small production, absolutely amazing, one of the purest expressions of Viognier on the planet, but drinking them in like the first five years. What? But of course, I was reading that there's a younger generation working at the Chateau now that are trying to create more age-worthy Viognier. I wonder if that's happening in Condru as well. Interesting. And as we continue down the west bank of the Rhone River, we go through the very long Saint-Joseph region. And I'm not going to talk about that because I talked a lot about that, enough about that in the Rhone episode. I want to talk about the more focused appellations that you're going to see on the American market. So just south of Saint-Joseph, as you listened to in the Rhone episode, is Cornas. Now, even though we're down towards the southern part of the northern Rhone, we're still a ways away from the northern Rhone, and we're still in that granite vibe, if you feel me. I mean, there's also some sand and some chalk, and it's rocky. And again, we'll be having a soil episode at some point. But this is a place where, as Condru does only Viognier, Cornas does only Syrah. There are no white wines produced in Cornas. It's also quite small. Its claim to fame is um, King Charlemagne really dug the wines from here. Uh, there's only, to this day, only about 90 hectares of vines. And these are very unique Syrah from the ones you would get from Hermitage. They're a little more, they're, they're denser, they're fuller, they're, they, have, they have more meat to them. They, I mean, Hermitage does as well, but there's a density to these wines that you don't get in Hermitage or Crow's Hermitage. And just like Crow's Hermitage is sort of the lighter version of Hermitage in a much larger area with a little bit less consistency and quality, even though there's really great quality there, that is why I'm not mentioning Saint-Joseph, because Saint-Joseph, just north of Cornas, is sort of that. It's a very long strip of land with Syrah and, the, and, and, and some Marsan and Roussan, but it's a little bit less consistent. But the thing about Saint-Joseph is whether it's not consistent or not, it's really great because it's affordable and a really great entry into the Northern Rhone. But Cornas tends to be a little bit more expensive, but it's more concentrated and you're pretty much guaranteed to get that crazy terroir almost every time. Of course, it's going to change a little bit. With certain sectors like Courtier de Renard, this is an area that is mostly granitic, so it's going to have a certain kind of expression to it. And then there's other expressions that have more clay and stuff like that. So also the thing about Cornas to understand it is in the Northern Rhone, it, is, it produces the most wine in the Northern Rhone. So when you're out there in shops, you're going to see a lot of Cornas. It's going to be, you know, and the, it, sometimes it brings down the price just a little bit because of the amount that's made, but 
you know, know that this is a beautiful, deep expression of Syrah. And those are the most we're going to see on the American market. Just south of Cornas is a place called saint pierre And those are Marsan, Roussan blend, white wines. Only 75 hectares are there. We just don't see a lot of that in the American market. But keep an eye out. It's there. They're wonderful. They're deep. They're round. They're luscious for white wines. They have great expressions of aromatics. But next round, we're going to the south. We're going to get real nice with some history and break that place apart. See you next week. Vine Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pear headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pear. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pear, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pear staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. Ian J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit thebarrelroom.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.